From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is the Daryl Hunt case. Hunt, an African-American male, was twice wrongly convicted of rape and murder of a young white woman. But after 19 years in prison, Hunt was exonerated. I speak with investigative reporter and Wake Forest University journalism professor Phoebe Zarek about the case, its ramifications, and its tragic aftermath. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. In 1984, 19-year-old Daryl Hunt was convicted of the brutal rape and murder of Deborah Sykes, a copy editor with the Winston-Salem Journal. Though no physical evidence linked Hunt to the crime, a number of witnesses placed him at the scene. An all-white jury convicted him and he was sentenced to life in prison. After 19 years of incarceration, DNA tests helped to exonerate Hunt in 2004. In 2016, Daryl Hunt died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. All of this begs the question, who was Daryl Hunt? And why does the shadow of his case continue to loom not only over the city of Winston-Salem, the state of North Carolina, but could also serve as a commentary on race and the criminal justice system in America. To answer these questions and others is Phoebe Zarek. An investigative reporter, Zarek covered the second Daryl Hunt trial while at the Winston-Salem Journal. She currently teaches journalism at Wake Forest University. Moreover, Zarek recently authored an article entitled The Last Days of Daryl Hunt. Phoebe Zarek, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's begin by you offering a brief synopsis of the Daryl Hunt case and take us up to his release from prison. And if you would, include your involvement in that case, if you would. Well, this is hard to be brief, but I will be, I will really try because it's a really Phoebe, complicated case. Phoebe, on the public morality, brief is a relative term, so go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um so in August of um, of 1984, there was a horrific um, murder in Winston-Salem. Um, a copy editor who actually worked at the afternoon newspaper where I eventually came to work, the afternoon paper, I worked at the morning paper, and she was on her way to work and had parked about a block from the newsroom and of course an afternoon paper you if you're a copy editor you can start work at around six in the morning so she was on her way to work at you know before six around five thirty and she was um dragged into the the field near the street where she'd parked she was raped um and stabbed 18 19 20 times and and killed and from the the investigation into the case got off to a bad start from the very beginning. So when she didn't show up at work, her colleagues went looking for her car and 
pretty quickly the managing editor at the newspaper called the police. Well, the police didn't want to do anything. They said, oh, well, you know, we don't get involved in, you know, missing person cases. And the police had gotten a 911 call um, from well, a witness who ended up being a sort of in very key to the investigation, a man named Johnny Gray, who called 911 um, when he saw the, the assault, and the, the call got all garbled up. And so he said he was near um, a, a fire department. In any event, the police went to the totally wrong part of town. And he also, he didn't identify himself. Instead of saying, this is Johnny Gray, he gave another man's name. He said, my name is Sammy Mitchell. Well, Sammy Mitchell was a sort of pretty well-known kind of petty criminal in town, and he'd been, he had a really long rap sheet, and when they finally, when the police finally found Deborah Sykes's body at around one in the afternoon, because um, finally co-workers were, went looking and finally she was found, um, so the first clue was this 911 call from this man who said he was Sammy Mitchell. So they went and looked for Sammy Mitchell, and um, Sammy Mitchell was good friends that summer with a younger man named Daryl Hunt. And so that's how Daryl Hunt got swept into the investigation. So um, I, it was within a day or two of the crime that police talked to Daryl Hunt because they wanted him to identify Sammy Mitchell's voice on this 911 call. Well, it wasn't Sammy Mitchell, but through um, because of this call and because of his connection to Sammy Mitchell, he got swept into the investigation, and eventually um, he was identified by one of the witnesses in a photo lineup, and then there were other witnesses who came forward, and once he was identified by one person, other people eventually picked him out of, of the lineup, and he was arrested um, a month after the murder and charged with murder. And there were, well, very early on, um, the DA tried to get him to turn on Sammy Mitchell, and Daryl Hunt refused to do that. Um, and eventually there were four or five witnesses um, who testified against him. He was convicted... Um, in 1985. Uh, then uh, that conviction was overturned on appeal on a technicality. He was he was out on bond in 1980, between 1989 and 1990, awaiting a second trial. Then it gets even more confusing because there was an unsolved murder from early in the 80s, um, an older man, well, I say older man, but now that I think about it, he was my age, but an older man who had been drinking um, in Winston-Salem was a dry town then, and there were these places called liquor houses. So in African-American neighborhoods, somebody would turn their house or apartment into kind of a speakeasy. So um, Arthur Wilson um, had died on his way home from one of these liquor houses and witnesses saw him assaulted and by by the 89 and 90 um the police found um witnesses who would uh, pin that crime on Daryl Hunt so he and Sammy Mitchell were both charged with that crime 
and I, t- I told you I can't really be brief. It's very complicated. No, no, no. Go, go, go right ahead. Because okay. This is, because this is so, the kind of thing we need to – because I can't ask until you finish this part. Yes. The other so questions won't make sense. he was convicted – Daryl Hunt was convicted again of the Deborah Sykes murder in 1990, but he was acquitted of the Arthur Wilson case, which was you know a very different kind of case. Um, the Sykes murder was – a black defendant accused of raping a white woman. Um, the Arthur Wilson case was a black defendant accused of beating up an older black man. Um, so then, you know, throughout all of this, Daryl Hunt had a very active defense committee in Winston-Salem who raised money for him, and um, so there was money after he was convicted the second time to for new rounds of appeals, and so in the early 90s... Um, Deborah, lo- if, if I just may, real yes. quickly, yes. I just want to—I just want you to emphasize something. So throughout this ordeal, mm-hmm. there were uh, people on both sides, some thinking he was guilty, and, 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 a, and a number of people in the community thinking he was innocent this whole time. Is that correct? Actually, yes, absolutely. So very early on... Um, a man named Larry Little, who is well-known in Winston-Salem, he was one of the original founders of Winston-Salem's Black Panther Party, so he was a big activist as a young man. Then he became a city alderman. We now call him city councilman. And shortly after Daryl Hunt was arrested, um, Larry Little started looking into his case, and he quickly became convinced that um, Daryl Hunt had been railroaded. And he organized with um, some African-American ministers in town, um, Carlton Eversley and John Mendez were the two most prominent ones, um, this defense committee. And so they raised money in African-American churches. They um, actually did some investigative work um, for Daryl Hunt's first attorney, um, well, two attorneys, Mark Rabel and Gordon Jenkins. They That gave them enough money to hire private investigators. There were protests um, in downtown Winston-Salem. Pretty much from the beginning, um, Daryl Hunt's case was a real cause in Winston-Salem. And, you know, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations, but African-Americans, large numbers of African-Americans in Winston-Salem saw him and perceived him as innocent from from the get-go. I would say um, the vast majority of um, white people in Winston-Salem, you know, this was the 80s. It was before all these other innocence cases. You know, most of us um, had faith in the justice system. So there was a huge divide in this community um, throughout the length of this case. So I think I was up until the early 90s where they were, there were new rounds of appeals, um, and they had, there was evidence that they found that had been... The, the, the prosecution is supposed to turn over any kind of what's called exculpatory evidence, the evidence that could weigh in the favor of the defendant. So they, the, his attorneys were getting all these police reports, all this evidence that... They were, at the time, working on the theory that that original caller, Johnny Gray, was involved. So that was the theory they were working with. And during this time, they 
um, DNA um, testing was in its infancy, but they did DNA testing on the um, evidence in the case, and um, they found that the DNA did not match Daryl Hunt, uh, did not match Sammy Mitchell, and did not match Johnny Gray. And so that evidence was presented um, as part of the appeals, and that became sort of the key part of the appeals all through, I would say, the mid-'90s through early 2000. And each court rejected that DNA evidence as being relevant, and it was kind of extraordinary, but every every um, appellate court that looked at it, beginning with um, the Superior Court judge in Winston-Salem, argued, well, just because Daryl Hunt hadn't raped Deborah Sykes, it didn't mean that he hadn't stabbed her. And that became the opinion all the way through the um, Federal Court of Appeals in Richmond. And then he was turned down by the Supreme Court in around, by the U.S. Supreme Court around 2000. And I told you this was not going to be um, brief. So then in the early 2000s, the state legislature passed a law that allowed defendants with a claim of, who had evidence of innocence to ask for more DNA testing. And by then, the DNA testing had evolved beyond where it was in 1994, and there were also federal and state databases of that held DNA of convicted felons. And so um, in 2003, Daryl Hunt's attorneys, led by Mark Rabel, um, asked the court for a new round of DNA testing. And um, that's where my role began. So um, by then, we had a new, relatively new managing editor at the Winston-Salem Journal, Carl Crothers, who had started there probably in around 95, 96, 97. We had a new city editor, um, who was my boss, Les Gora, who had started there, you know, sometime around 2001. And they both, well, Carl Crothers had had an interest in the case for some time. Les Gora had worked on a case of wrongful arrest. It wasn't wrongful conviction, but wrongful arrest when he was at the Hartford Current in Connecticut. So when these, when we wrote the just the simple news story about um, the request for DNA evidence, Les went back and pulled all the old clip files. So in newspapers, you, before the Internet, we used to keep all these clippings in these little manila envelopes. We called them the clip files. And so the two of them, uh, Les and Carl, um, got interested in really doing an investigation of this case. And I was this uh, Metro columnist and one of the more senior reporters in the newsroom, so they assigned me to... Um, take a fresh look at this case. And if, just for the record, mm-hmm. on the second trial for Daryl Hunt, what was right. his sentence? Oh, his sentence was life. The first time around, his sentence was life, too. So in the first trial, the DA had gone for the death penalty, and this was really key. The, they, it was clearly a capital murder case, and, and um, the Deborah Sykes had been raped and brutally, brutally murdered. 
um, you know, stabbed multiple times. So clearly it was a capital murder case. And one of the things I found that was, and I think the, the attorneys knew about it at the time, um, the standard for, um, you know, you find somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury should have no reasonable doubt of guilt. Well, at the first trial, his jury actually did have some doubt, um, and that's why they didn't give him the death penalty. Um, so it was all messed up. If you had reasonable doubt, he shouldn't have been convicted. But they had they convicted him, but then they didn't. They felt that it wasn't a strong enough case to give him the death penalty. So they had um, reasonable doubt for the death penalty, but not reasonable or quasi reasonable doubt for his guilt. I mean, I'm, I'm not clear. How does that work? Well, it's, it's <laughs> not. It was the wrong standard. I mean, yes. they applied the wrong standards. When when you get to the death penalty stage, you're supposed to be weighing. Um, um, is the is is crime and the and the and the and the and the person himself, not the evidence um, for guilt. So they, you know, they they didn't really apply the legal standard in that first trial. But so the second trial, by then, once you don't get the death penalty, the death penalty is off the table. So he got a life sentence um, from the from the second jury. Now, um, after uh, Daryl Hunt's release. Mm-hmm. He became uh, a celebrity to many, uh, not especially in Winston-Salem, but I, I would argue probably all around the state of North Carolina. Absolutely. Talk- I would argue all around, the, in a way, all around the world. Well, then talk talk about that time period in Daryl Hunt's life, if you would. Sure. So, well, first of all, in Winston-Salem, Daryl Hunt already was a celebrity. I mean, he was a celebrity almost from the you know, from the time he was 19 and was arrested because of the Daryl Hunt Defense Committee and all of that work uh, was widely covered in both the Winston-Salem Journal, the Winston-Salem Chronicle, all the TV stations. So he was, he was in his case, that case was a celebrated case the entire time. So I think even when he was in prison, he was a celebrity among prisoners because his case um, had such um, was so widely covered in Winston Salem and around the state. But when he was released, um, you know, I suppose a couple of things happened. Um, but the, what really brought him statewide and national attention was there was a documentary made. Um, called the Trials of Daryl Hunt. Um, that had, the the filmmakers had started it in the 90s, but had never been able to finish it. And then when he was released, they were able to raise money um, and get the film finished. And the film is a beautiful, powerful film. It, I think, it um, premiered at Sundance and you know made its way through all the big. Um, film festivals, and then it aired on HBO, and it won uh, many awards, and, um, you know, because it was on HBO and because it was at all these national and international film festivals, um, it kind of made um, Daryl an international figure, and he also became... um, Pretty pretty soon after his release, he became a really strong advocate for 
all kinds of justice issues in North Carolina, but he also traveled around the country um, to various legal conferences that have to do with the innocence movement, with wrongful conviction, with the death penalty. He spoke at law schools all over the country. He spoke every year at Duke Law School. He worked with um, Mark Rabel, who eventually um, ran the Innocence Clinic at um, Wake Forest. So he worked with a lot of students at Wake Forest. He was, um, you know, he spoke at the legislature on issues related to the death penalty. He was a key advocate for a law that has since been repealed, but it was a law called the Racial Justice Act that allowed uh, people on death row to appeal their sentence, so not their conviction, but their sentence if there was evidence of racial bias in the way they'd been sentenced to death. Um, so he was uh, well-known all over the country. But in Winston-Salem, you know, he was especially well-known. I you know, I experienced this when any time I I was together with him, everybody recognized him. And um, after you know, I've since learned that it was uh, even more intense than I than I had realized to the point where you know, he couldn't go to the grocery store without people recognizing him. And I think that part, at least his local celebrity, you know, really did become a kind of burden to him because he you know there was there was kind of no he had no privacy ever mm-hmm. you, um, you talked earlier you, you mentioned that and then we want to be clear you were not making just broad strokes but mm-hmm. but you you were clear and you did state that there was largely difference of opinions in terms of the white community how they saw the Daryl Hunt case in, yes. the black, in the black community yes did any of that change after his release yes so you know when when I first started looking into the case the way I experienced this diff, this divided opinion was I was trying to find all these you know, original witnesses in the case, all kinds of different characters. So I spent a lot of time in African-American communities in Winston-Salem, you know, going to people's addresses who were no longer there. So I would have lots of casual conversations with people about what I was doing. And I would say pretty much any African-American person I casually ran into um, I would get the same reaction, which was, good, I'm glad the newspaper is about looking into this case. Um, You know, that that man was railroaded. That was the reaction. In white communities and even within the newsroom, the, the reaction I often got was, why is the newspaper digging up this old history? He's had two trials. He's, you know, every court up through the Supreme Court has looked at it. Um, he's had reinvestigation. Some of the best lawyers in the state just let it alone. Why is why are you digging up this old history? So that was you know my anecdotal experience of the difference in the point of in the in the way the case was regarded. And actually, there was um, in the first trial, um, his lawyers. Um, did um, a poll, a survey, because they were trying to gather evidence on how to pick a jury. And so they did a, 
um, a, a, a survey of potential jurors, and they found that black people thought he was innocent, white people thought he was guilty. So that was even before he was convicted, you know, just based on what people read in the news. Um, after um, this investigative series that I wrote ran, um, which what was unusual about the way we wrote it was um, we wrote it as a narrative, so that's a different way for newspapers to tell stories, especially um, a long investigative piece. So we wrote it as a as a story, you know, using techniques that you would use either in film or novels with cliffhangers and scenes and characters, etc. And even before he was exonerated, you know, people seeing seeing this story unfold, people white people who I would run into casually began to see the case differently. And then once he was exonerated, yes, I think lots of people saw the case differently. Although, you know, there's still people in town who who I have run into. I don't I can't give a specific example, but there are people in town who still think he's guilty. Um you also talked earlier uh, about his celebrity status being a burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you consider him a uh, reluctant celebrity? Well, you know, I talked for for this piece that I just wrote, I talked, you know, great length, for example, with his ex-wife. You know, so I think he was a reluctant celebrity, but it was kind of unavoidable. I mean, from the pretty much from the moment he was arrested and this defense committee formed around him, he became a celebrity, and I don't know that he would have, you know, I think it was always a double-edged sword. So without that defense com- committee, without that notoriety, there wouldn't have been any money for him to have appellate attorneys. Um, when he got out of prison and became an advocate i think that 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 work gave him you know a tremendous sense of purpose he really wanted to um work on these causes he also really wanted to work one on one um for people he had a foundation that worked with um inmates coming out of prison and he did a lot of counseling work one on one I think all of all that whole public role he had, I think, was really meaningful to him. But the more I talked to people who'd been close to him, um, the more it became clear that it also was a burden. So I think it worked both ways for him. Darrell Hunt died in 2016. Was it like April, May of 2016? I can't. It was March. March, I'm sorry. March, right. of, March of 2016. He, he was found March the 13th, and he um, went missing that first week of March. Okay. So of a self-inflicted um, gunshot wound. Yes. Now, uh, a little more than a year uh, after his death, um, what prompted you to write, in essence, of 2,200 words on an essay? Yeah, actually, not to, to, to you know, just because I'm nitpicky, it was 12,000 words. Uh, I originally wrote 7,000 words, and the editor I worked with said, oh, this could be, you'd need to go deeper. <laughs> 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 um, so I think, 
you know, I I really it wasn't a, I pretty much um started working on it um right after he died. Um although I don't think I really realized that I was going to end up writing something. You know, I started the reporting because um I I wanted to find out what had happened. Um but I think I really started thinking about writing more about him when he came to visit my class um, in January, so it was about six weeks before he died, and I remember he was talking with my students and talking about his life in prison, and I remember thinking that, um, what did I think? I remember thinking that there was so much about his story that deserved to be told that hadn't really been told um, in depth yet, um, and the, the the work I'd done, that the film there there been a, there were a couple of other books written about him, um, one by his sixth grade teacher and another by a religion professor at Wake Forest, but all those focused you know on the case and on 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 really on the past, and so I remember being struck by how much about his time in prison um, I didn't really understand and how much about his life, you know, after prison. Um, But then when he died, I think I just, I wanted to, yeah, at first it just began as, you know, wanting to know what happened. But that's, you know, I'm a journalist, so I'm curious. And then as I began to find out more about what he was facing, it's, I felt, I don't know, I felt in a way that, well, it was a mixed, it was also double-edged. I felt it was kind of my duty to to tell his story, but I also don't know that he would have wanted anybody prying so deeply because he spent, um, you know, he put a lot of effort into trying to maintain his privacy. But it felt that there was, I also felt that there was a larger story here to be told that his story, in a way as it always has, um, stood for a larger story about what happens um, to people after they're exonerated and this larger story about the idea that for, for most of these cases, and there's now been, I just checked today, there, have now been 2,024 exonerations in this country. Um, you know, for the public, that story tends to end in this sort of triumphant um, image of the man, or in some cases, the woman getting out of pres- prison. This big celebration. You know, justice has been finally prevailed, and and then what happens? And I felt that there was, you know, this larger story to tell. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with investigative reporter and Wake Forest uh, journalism professor Phoebe Zurich. Um, Phoebe, one of the things that I gleaned from your piece, mm-hmm. the, the truncated version, I didn't read the all 12,000 uh, words. Oh, okay. Version. <laughs> Where did you read 2,000 words? Uh, I read two, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have to send it to you. I read, yeah. read 2,000. It was like 2,200 and change. Is huh, what, yeah. Okay. So see, see, see what happens is just, is is where you find your source, I guess. But, yeah. But but one of the things that that I did glean from the abbreviated piece uh-huh. was um, that as it is, I think it's true for for most of us, but particularly those of us in the spotlight, 
is that there were two Daryl Hunts. So talk about that, if you would, if, I, if, 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 I'm, if I'm on to something there. Yeah. So, well, I don't know that I agree that there were two Daryl Hunts, first mm-hmm. of all. But here's what people knew, and then here's what people, some many people did not know. Well, let me just clarify. So his, I'm just saying that there was Daryl Hunt, but there was also that public image that he, yeah. he, that he was buried with. That's where I'm... Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, um, so to me, sort of his the the uh, public his public um, image was in a way created um, at his exoneration hearing, and there was this extraordinary moment that anybody who and and the film pretty much begins with this moment. Um, Deborah Sykes's mother um, came to the exoneration hearing. And her name is Evelyn Jefferson, and um, she did not believe that Daryl Hunt was innocent. And the judge gave her a chance to speak, and she spoke about um, how the court was getting ready to make a grave error and uh, and free the man who murdered her daughter. So it was this, you know, it was this incredible moment in the courtroom. And um, then she went back to her seat, and um, th- and the judge um, gave Daryl the chance to stand and speak. And he turned and turned around because she was seated, um, you know, by then behind him in the seats in the courtroom. And he turned and looked at her, and he basically he you know he offered him offered her his um, empathy and compassion and talked about the the loss she'd experienced and how terrible that must have been for her. And then he told her that he was praying for her. And, you know, she had just basically accused him of murder again and tried to stand in the way of his exoneration. So this was just this, it was this incredible moment of, of, I don't know what what other word to use. I used it in the piece. It was this incredible moment of grace, and anybody who was there used that word. This moment of grace, and so that's what people saw of him. You know, from then on, they saw he was he had become eloquent. He was compassionate. He was um, very calm in all of his public appearances. He was thoughtful, um, and he never seemed, you know, angry. Or if he expressed anger, it was always he. It didn't come through in the tone of his voice. You know, he talked about um, how the justice system had let him down, but he never acted, behaved in an angry manner. And I think that was the 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 image people had of him of this kind of, you know, almost um, larger-than-life, beatific kind of figure. Mm-hmm. But then there was another side that he, the private side, where there were some other ish- some other things going on with him. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, the public in a way got a... So he had married um, a woman when he was in prison. So um woman he'd met when he was out of prison back in the... 8990 when he was awaiting his second trial and um she, they started corresponding and she started visiting him in the late 90s and they got married in 2000 and 
so when he was exonerated, he was married and he went, you know, to live with his wife and her. She had um, three children. And I had kept up with him over the years in part largely because of the film. There were panel discussions and screenings and also through his lawyer, um, Mark Rabel, who eventually came to teach at Wake Forest where I teach. And, you know, so I knew just sort of informally that um, his the marriage was in trouble and they split up and then got back together and then split up. I'm losing track of the dates. I think um, 2014 or 2013, 2014, I think, was when they split up. And all this became public for him in what I imagine was a really painful way. They had, they were separated, and he'd gone to, she she still lived in their house, and something, you know, they had some kind of disagreement or argument. And um, she ended up filing a, a petition to get a restraining order. So, of course, that became very public. It got into the Winston-Salem Journal, and then every TV station, everybody in the state picked up this story about you know, Daryl Hunt exonerated of murder, um, now um, facing an allegation of domestic violence. Um, there was never... a there was never a restraining order, but as they were in the midst of getting divorced, so as part of the divorce proceedings, they agreed to something called a mutual restraining order. So that means they basically each agreed that they had to stay away from each other. So that was kind of a, a hint that you know his private life was you know in, in a lot of trouble, um, and. He, after that, he had a half-sister, and so he moved to Atlanta to live with his half-sister in 20, 2015, um, and what I'd heard was that he finally just felt he just it would be better for him to get out of Winston-Salem and go someplace where he wasn't so well-known and where everybody didn't know his whole story. Um, and then when I started looking into this, story, I learned, um, I spent a lot of time talking to his ex-wife, April Hunt, and um, she told me that um, he was having, pretty early on in the marriage, that um, that he was having trouble with uh, drug abuse. And I never was able to completely confirm that in a you know, with like a drug test or something. Um, the medical examiner had tried to confirm it by ordering a toxicology screening, but the state didn't do the toxicology screening. So, it, you know, I'm, a, I'm relying in all of this on what um, people I spoke to told me, um, but I'm pretty confident um, that she was correct, that he had developed um, a drug problem. Now on that piece, on, on that piece, you, you received some pushback from a lot of the friends and supporters of Daryl Hunt for for writing that in your article. Is that correct? Um, no, actually, it. I didn't really receive pushback. Okay. I thought I would, but okay. um, people who pe- uh, his people close to him had heard about these allegations. Allegations, the wrong word. Had heard. 
um, rumors that he had been using drugs, and they always dismissed it because um, they thought that you know people were just trying to undermine um, undermine him, and so they dismissed it. But I think after he died, the people who were close to him, I mean, people knew that he'd been depressed. And the people I spoke to who were close to him, I think, now believe that that was the case. The the other thing that I found was that he'd been um, telling everybody that he had cancer, advanced cancer, and um, was getting treatments for cancer, and you know, was at the end of his life because of cancer and um, the medical examiner um, had also heard this when she you know when she got the case and she looked for evidence of cancer um, and going so far as to order his medical records from Atlanta where he had been telling people he was getting cancer treatment and she found no evidence of cancer Um, so you know, based, essentially what my story concluded was that, um, you know, based on this autopsy that she did, a really thorough autopsy, was that he didn't have cancer and that in all likelihood he was abusing drugs because he was suffering from depression or maybe, you know, I don't. he never got a lot of treatments. I don't know what his diagnosis would have been. Um, and that the... He was telling people he had cancer essentially to cover up the fact that he was in all likelihood using drugs. He'd lost a lot of weight, um, and um, I I really haven't gotten um, much pushback about that except for, oh, um, the local, the Winston-Salem Journal interviewed me and interviewed Larry Little about it, and I think he still thinks that... Um, that Daryl had cancer, mm-hmm. even. But he and I talked about it, and he, you know, I think he just. I, I don't know completely what he thinks. I, so I got a little bit of pushback about that. But um, mm-hmm. other than that, I, I was surprised that I didn't get more pushback. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote uh, mm-hmm. f- from your piece, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'd like you to respond. I think sure. it, it touches on something we've been talking to a yeah. thread. Uh, you wrote, quote, Little spoke to a, a rambling talk about Hunt's legacy that brought people to their feet and turned the atmosphere into something that felt more like a political rally than a funeral. Yes. Say more if you would. So, yeah, so he was a, you know, Daryl had become this public figure. And what I remember being at the funeral um, was at one point it, we ended it sort of people ended up talking about another case of wrongful conviction in Winston Salem the let me think back i think oh yeah the attorney general roy cooper who's now our governor so he was running i suppose the primaries were on in march of 2016 yeah so he was running for governor and that came up as in in this whole um eulogy that was given and at one point you know, we were all on our feet, and I found myself on my feet, and I don't actually remember what it was about, but it had something to do with this other case of wrongful conviction and and Roy Cooper and, you know, other, you know, sort of bigger political issues that came up. And then I sat down, and I thought, wow, this I just felt so strange that there we were to 
mourn Daryl Hunt, and suddenly we were talking about, you know, somebody's campaign for governor. Um, and it felt that this that the man, Daryl Hunt, this man, this person, this human being, this complex person, you know, that that people really wanted to be thinking about his legacy rather than and his legacy as a you know as an advocate for social justice and as you said probably a somewhat reluctant advocate that that that, that who he was as as a man was getting lost if you if you're just joining us I'm speaking with investigative reporter and uh uh, journalism professor at Wake Forest University, Phoebe Zarek, and we're talking about the uh, Daryl Hunt case that sort of spanned over several decades, the odyssey of it. Um, Phoebe, wh- what are some of the larger ramifications? I mean, you sort of touched on, even at the funeral, they talked about wrongful convictions, but as you reflect back on covering the case and then mm-hmm. the piece you recently wrote, what are some of the ra- larger ramifications um, for your take? your takeaway? So... So I mean, first of all, his story is 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 the story that now there've been, as I said, I think it's 2024. People have been exonerated in the United States, um, and the estimates suggest that there are thousands more who are wrongly convicted. Um, you know, rarely are sort of lesser. It tends to be the murder and rape and sex assaults that get the attention um, to lead to an exoneration, but um, it's estimated that there are thousands of other people who are wrongly convicted of crimes. Um, And these 2024 wrongful convictions, the other statistic that goes with it is that that's more than 17,000 years lost um, to unjust prison sentences. You know, these people spent combined 17,000 years in prison. Um, So that's a lot of lives destroyed in the, you know, every person's story is unique, but but the idea is the same. That's a lot of lives that our system is destroyed. Um, And I think the innocence movement has, obviously focused on getting people exonerated, um, but there's now more attention being paid to what do we do for people afterwards. So I think that's one you know, larger, larger issue that this story touches on. We also have two million people incarcerated in this country. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that those, those two million people were wrongly incarcerated, but um, they get out of prison, and prison destroys people. And I think that the, at least the issues having to do with the trauma people face in prison and then the challenges of reentry um, are very common issues now in this country and the impact of imprisonment on families um, and getting back to work and the impact on entire communities um, I think Daryl's story speaks to that too, and then part of what um, the piece I wrote is is about, in a way, it's partly about journalism, and partly about 
you know, how we tell stories and how we um, how we verify stories and the the journalism's you know the first draft of history so it's always incomplete and we're always missing some something and i think that's uh, really important to to understand today especially with um you know journalism um, under assault and nobody so much of the public not understanding the difference between verified news and fake news and um I, I just think understanding how journalism works is really important. And then this whole question of um, the burden of celebrity. So almost any um, cause, in, in, well, not just in this country, around the world, we're always looking for the story, the figurehead that's going to help us understand the issue we're trying to understand, right? And every... Every advocacy organization um, uses individuals to t- to tell the story, the larger story that that advocacy organization is working on. But and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but I think it's important to understand the 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 price or the burden that that puts on the inv- on the individual. Um, did they? ever convict anyone else of the murder that Daryl Hunt was exonerated? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they can, um, When they did the new round of DNA testing, they found a match to um, a man who'd actually been under investigation for other rapes, and he, he was convicted, and his, um, his name is Willard Brown, and he's serving a life sentence. And finally, what, what where, obviously, I saw a truncated version, so where is the best place to find your 12,000-word piece? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was um, published on this platform called Atavist, by, and, but it was, um, I, I worked with a really fantastic editor at Duke Law School. He's a journalist, um, Andrew Park, and he's their communication director at the law school, and um, they supported um, my work on this story. And the best way to get there, well, I haven't put it up on my website yet because I'm I'm bad at keeping up with things, but it will be up there by the end of the day. Um, so my website is phoebezerwick.com, which would probably be the easiest way to get there. The um, It's also... Um, where else is the link? The link is oh, the link is at the on the Winston Salem Journal right now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, on the WFDD website, um, and it's on this platform called Atavist. Um, so I suppose if you went to Atavist and searched Daryl Hunt, you'd find it. So when you put it on your website, just make sure you put in quotations the official. Okay. Zurich version. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think what you read, you know, there's there's several chapters. So when uh-huh. for your listeners, when you read it, keep going, keep clicking through to the next chapters. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Phoebe Zurich, thank you for okay. being on the public morality today. We enjoyed uh, very much having you. Oh well, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you very much. I really appreciate it. And now for my closing remarks. We dedicated the entire hour to the saga of Daryl Hunt. This was a story about injustice, race, redemption, hope, and tragedy. 
Such factors make it a profoundly American story. It is profoundly American to slow down just long enough to glance at the sensational in order to make a knee-jerk assessment, only to be bemused when others don't see it as we do. Daryl Hunt, the man from friend and foe alike, became a convenient social adjective to describe the absurd. For many, he was a reluctant hero. Long before the trial of O.J. Simpson, Winston-Salem, North Carolina was rocked by a gruesome crime that was viewed largely through the restricting cataracts of race. Seldom do we take the time to ponder why others might see the same event differently. It is much easier to reflexively state that they're wrong. Daryl Hunt, the adjective, is commingled with those uh, wrongly convicted and those seeking a platform. Has anything changed in the aftermath of Daryl Hunt's life and death? Probably not. Could it be we're already preoccupied with the next Daryl Hunt, whoever he or she may be, so that we can once again adorn our opaque lenses in order to render our emotionally impulsive expertise as we helplessly pursue that more perfect union? The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is PublicMorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm... Byron Williams.